Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, this text is good and beautiful and difficult and challenging in what it is and how we live it out and, and how we interact with what you've done for us in Christ. And so I just pray that you would help us all as we engage with this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you would help it to form us into being men and women who live our lives to glorify you in every way and that we would persevere in our trust from now till the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are, are two primary reasons why I think this text can be kind of hard to understand. Um, the first is that Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, uh, the first reason I think it's difficult to understand is that he is literally trying to describe something that is nearly indescribable. He's trying to get them to comprehend something that is nearly incomprehensible. He is writing to them about the importance of of our future bodily resurrection in light of the profound truth of Jesus' past resurrection. And he is comparing our current experience of bodily decay and weakness with our future experience of bodily glory and power. And there can be a disconnect there. It's like what he's trying to do is explain to someone what a 50-foot-tall oak tree looks like and how it's grown and how it flourishes. And he's trying to explain it all to somebody who's never seen it by just showing them an acorn. He's going, hi, this is an acorn. And they go, thank you. He goes, let me tell you about an oak tree. And if you've never seen an oak tree before, it is very hard to believe that an oak tree can come from that acorn. And he's talking about our future bodily resurrection. Almost incomprehensible for us to grasp. That's the first reason that I think this is a difficult text to understand sometimes. The second reason is that we may have, I'm not accusing you of anything here, but I'm just saying you may have inherited a very unbiblical view of heaven. And if you have a very unbiblical view of heaven, then it's going to be difficult to comprehend eternity in an embodied way with a resurrected body. If you have an unbiblical view of heaven, it will be really hard to figure out the embodied nature of the resurrected life that is to come. We bring so many assumptions and so many preconceived ideas and even unbiblical caricatures of heaven to this text itself that they get in the way. They obscure what he's actually saying here. So we need to clear away some of that stuff and we need to go at it and see if we can figure this out. See, the whole idea of a resurrected body is hard to hang on to if you think our eternal home is a disembodied, sort of cloudy, kind of angels with harps 
you know, spending eternity floating around as sort of a spirit ghost kind of thing, just in an eternal church service. Now, if you think that's what heaven is, that's, that's going to be difficult to then understand the importance of the resurrected body. Um, I don't know where exactly that whole idea of heaven comes from, but it is very culturally pervasive, and I think sometimes we take in some of those things that are culturally pervasive. And I don't know where the idea of heaven like that comes from, but it's certainly not the Bible. So we need to talk about this. And just in case we do have that unbiblical view of heaven, what I want to do today is just start there, kind of on that 30,000-foot view of things, and, and start from that big picture and then draw us down into the text, talking about the resurrected body and the importance of that, and um, hopefully even getting to a point where we talk about practically what that might do in our lives. And so we're going to talk about our future home, our future bodies, and our present life. Our future home, our future bodies, and our present life. So first, let's talk about our future home. Let's start by asking a question. Start with the question of what happens when we die. What happens when we die? A lot of people believe a lot of different things about what happens when we die. If you're an atheist or a naturalist, you think that this body is all that there is to your existence, and so the body dies, that's it, the end, finito, it's over, there's nothing else. There's nothing else, so that means in your life you better leave a mark so that people can remember you because all that you're ever going to be remembered in and the only future you really have is in the memories of those who love you and maybe in the history books if you're a really big deal. And so you better make your mark in this world because as a person, when you die, you are over. You are then just a decomposing carbon unit in the ground. Then there's the reincarnationalists. They would have you living a merciless cycle of lives trying to do better and, and, and trying harder in each subsequent life to elevate your status in the world toward enlightenment. And so you're living your life and maybe you're not doing very well and you think, well, I guess maybe in the next one it's not going to go so well for me. And so you die and you're reincarnated as something else and it's probably not as good because you know what? You weren't that great of a person. Or, man, you really tried hard and you just keep climbing that ladder of enlightenment. But that's the, re the reincarnationalist understanding of what happens when you die. You're going to go on in a cyclical thing forever. Then there's the universalists. Universalists believe, well, when you die, everyone goes to heaven because isn't that nice? Everyone goes to heaven when you die. The problem is that basically denies our current experience of what life is like, and it denies the problems with unrepentant evil dwelling eternally with God. Right? That's a great lovey, sort of lovey-dovey, fuzzy, kind of warm idea to have about it. Just like when you die, everyone goes to heaven. You go, oh, we all want that. That would be great. The problem is until you get there and you see who else is there. And you go, hey, that, that was evil incarnate. And you go, yeah, 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 but it's just, yeah, it's just universalist. When you die, you go to heaven, it's okay. And you go, no, that's denying the justice of God. That's denying some sense of eternal justice. This is not right. And, and that's what we would feel in this world. And so I just want to say, what's going to happen when you die? Well, the New Testament teaches us that a Christian, when he or she dies, goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Other translations you're maybe familiar with would say that when you're absent from the body, it is to be present with the Lord. Uh, it says in Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh 
is more necessary on your account. Um, Jesus himself, as he's being crucified, he's got a person to his left and a person to his right. And the thief on the cross who comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, he's speaking with Jesus, and Jesus says to him, because of his belief, he says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So for people who have been saved by the redemptive work of Jesus, when we die, we go immediately into the presence of Jesus. The Bible also teaches that for those who die apart from the saving work of Christ, having not repented of their sin and having chosen a life apart from God, that choice continues on into eternity. They're not welcomed into the presence of God in heaven, that they're condemned to hell. Their choices here continue on through eternity. So when we die and immediately we go to be with Jesus, what the Bible calls that is heaven. When Christians die, they are immediately brought into the presence of Jesus. The Bible calls that heaven. But is that where we stay forever? The answer is no. That's not where we stay forever. This is what we should think of as the present heaven. There's a book by a guy named Randy Alcorn. The title is Heaven. If you're going to read one book in your life on the topic of heaven, read that one. It's good. He has read every other book on heaven, and then he wrote the best. <laughs> if you call your book heaven, you better bring it. <laughs> and it is. It's very, very good, very, very helpful. And he distinguishes between what he calls the present heaven and the future heaven. And so that's the language I want to use. It's what theologians will call the intermediate state. Uh, there's another theologian who also wrote a book. If you're going to read two books on heaven, you could read a, a book that was very helpful to me uh, probably 10, 12 years ago. Um, the, the book is called uh, Surprised by Hope by an author named N.T. Wright. It's very, very helpful on the topic of heaven and new creation, which is what we're going to be looking at. N.T. Wright's fond of saying this. He said, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. There's something else going on. And here's what he means by that. He means heaven as the present heaven. It's the place where your Jesus-loving granny is, right? Jesus-loving granny dies immediately into the presence of Jesus in heaven. The present heaven is not the final destination. When, when someone who follows Jesus dies, they immediately go to be with Jesus. But the present heaven as it is right now is more of a pit stop than it is a destination. To paraphrase N.T. Wright again, when we're asking what the Bible says about heaven, we're not actually asking about what happens after we die. We're not talking about life after death. When the Bible's teaching on this, it's talking about life after life after death. Think about it when you fly somewhere. Let's just fly somewhere, you're in the airport, you're in the security line, and somebody says to you, hey, where are you going? This happened to me one time. I was in North Africa uh, working with some people and uh, was flying home from Cairo, Egypt, and I was flying home via London. And so I'm in the security line, and somebody says to me, hey, where are you going? And I said, Vancouver, even though my ticket said London. Why? Well, I had a stopover in London. That's where I was flying to before I got on the plane home. And London is wonderful. London's great. I like London. But it's not home. It's the pit stop on the way home. And that's exactly what's going on here. When we die, we go immediately to be with Jesus, and the stopover is amazing. The present heaven amazing as it is, is not where we are going to spend all of eternity. Okay, now hear me. We are all formed by the culture that we live in, which means many of us show up here deeply, deeply impacted by individualism. 
So when we come to know Jesus, we go, you know what, Jesus, he saved me. And that's true, and that's good. And then we join a congregation like Christ City, and you become part of the church, and you become part of the family of God, and you recognize, oh man, it's actually not just about me, it's actually about us. Jesus saved us, and then we all go, yeah, that's true. That's we're, we're the worshiping community of people. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what we all think we are. We're a bunch of people who have had an encounter with Jesus, who he has saved, and brought us into relationship with himself and one another in a big community. But because we think fairly individualistically, and we think very temporally, we kind of go, that's all that there is. There's Jesus saved me, and then he saved us. But what we don't recognize is that the saving work of Jesus is intended to have cosmic consequences. It's transformational for the whole earth and the whole cosmos. We have, a think of it like this, a present earth, and then we have a present heaven, where if you're a follower of Jesus, you go immediately upon your death. And the life after, life after death that we see in the Bible is a sort of marrying together of the present earth and the present heaven, and sort of marrying them together in what is called the new heavens and new earth. This is where we'll spend eternity. Let me show you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Our eternal heaven is a marrying together, in a sense, of heaven and earth. 2 Peter 3, verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is in the prophets in the Old Testament. This is all through the New Testament. What are they getting at when they're talking about new? Well, Anthony Hochma said, both in 2 Peter 3.13 that we just read and Revelation 21.1, which we just read, the Greek word used to designate the newness of the new cosmos is not neos, but kainos. The word neos means new in time or origin, whereas the word kainos means new in nature or in quality. In other words, here's what he's getting at. A new heaven and a new earth means a world that is renewed, not brand new. It is renewed, not brand new. And we need to understand this. The scope of our eternal salvation that God has offered us in Christ, it's personal, it's corporate, and it's cosmic. You are new. When you become a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says you are a new creation in Christ. You're not brand new, you're renewed. You are new creation. There's a renewal that has happened in you as you've renewed, you've taken on new life in Christ. When we talk about Adam, which we'll we'll talk about Adam a little bit more, but, but, but in Adam, we talk about how Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and their sin and rebellion has impacted everything 
in the whole of existence that we would understand. In Adam, everything was subjected to the effects of sin. That means our relationship with God was broken, our relationship with one another was broken, and our relationship with all of creation was broken. That's what happened in Adam. But in Jesus, everything will be subject to the renewing work of God. So everything that was touched by the fall of Adam into sin is also going to be touched by the renewal of Jesus in his new work. That's why Romans chapter 8 talks about how the earth groans under the weight of sin. Even the earth itself has been affected by our rebellion against God. Again, Anthony Hochma said, We need a clear understanding of the doctrine of the new earth, therefore, in order to see God's redemptive program in cosmic dimensions. We need to realize that God will not be satisfied until the entire universe has been purged of all the results of man's fall. This is the fall of humanity into sin. So if you're a person who thought, look, God is here to save me, and then he is going to get me the heck out of here to go be with him. You have probably a bit of an escapist view of salvation. And that escapist view of salvation will actually end up having disastrous consequences in your life because rather than engaging in God's good creation in the world that we live in, right? He's not given up on that world. But rather than engaging in that world, if you have an escapist view, you're going to be tempted to just sort of hide away and hope that it's, you know, your chance is coming soon to punch your ticket out of this mess. That's what you're hoping. Best case scenario, it's quick. Now, rather than doing the hard work of applying the redemption that we've received to all of life, you sort of just have a, I just want to get out of here idea. And trust me, I'm well acquainted with the get out of here idea. Because I know what's promised to me. It sounds infinitely better than what I've got. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan and a purpose for me in the moment right now. I'm new creation. See, what I think about eternity, when I think about this, I, I, eternity, what I think about eternity, will impact how I live today. What you think about eternity will impact the way that you live today. So if you're an atheist or a naturalist, you think this is all that there is. Not a big deal. You're going to die and that's it. If you're a reincarnationalist, you think, well, man, at least I've got another chance. Maybe I'll do better in the next life. If you are a universalist, you think probably doesn't really matter because everyone's going there. So it actually doesn't matter at all how you live today. But if you're a Christian, you know that God loves this whole world so much that he's going to renew the whole thing. You can now live your life informed by that promised future. You know what is yours in Christ and how you can live out of that power today. And I said the reason that we're looking at the text that we're looking at today, why it's a challenge, is that on one hand, it's describing something that is nearly indescribable. And on the other hand, we might have had an unbiblical view of our future home. We might have had an unbiblical view of heaven, which makes it really difficult to then comprehend what he's saying about our future bodies. They're talking about the resurrected body, and if you don't have a setting for that resurrected body to live in, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for it. But once we get a sense of what our future home is going to truly be like, then the promise and description of our future bodies makes a lot more sense. So we've talked about our future home. Now, secondly, let's talk about our future bodies. Our future bodies. You could call that uh, a little bit of preamble. You could call that setting the stage. Or you could call that the longest introduction you've ever heard to get to the text that we're actually looking at today. Call it whatever you want. Our future bodies. 
our future bodies. The question that's being asked from the Corinthians to Paul, something like this. What are our resurrection bodies going to be like? What are they going to be like? And that's a question I think Paul's answering in the text. Look at verse 42. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So what are our resurrection bodies going to be like? Well, the answer in the text is utterly transformed. From perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power. And every single person living in the city of Vancouver and in this province and in this country and any nation on this planet, every single person knows that our present bodies are perishable. They're corrupted, they're decaying, they're dying. Now, some of you look like you might be young enough to not feel it. That's okay. But you see it everywhere you look. <laughs> some of the people you've been sitting next to for worship for the last little while are looking older by the week, are they not? <laughs> Had a conversation with a guy after the first gathering. He thought that was targeted particularly at him. <laughs> I said, no, when we planted this church, my beard was black. It is no longer black. It will one day be white, and then I will shave it as to look a little younger than I am. We all know this. Our present bodies are perishable. In our present bodies, we can feel dishonor, which is to say that we all feel the general miseries associated with the perishable reality of our physicality. We all know that our bodies are perishable, but we long for the imperishable, Everyone around us does. We all know that our bodies are suffering some kind of dishonor and we all long for the glory. In our present bodies, we are well acquainted with weakness. B.J. Oropisa said this weakness reflects physical limitations, deformities, disabilities, and diseases experienced in aging and frail bodies, of which Paul's body is an example. And you go, Paul the Apostle is the example of an aging and frail body. The guy died 2,000 years ago. What are you talking about? That's so abstract, I can't possibly understand what it would look like to see a weak body. I'm, just, I'm right here. I'm right here. This thing's falling apart. I have abused it. I have beaten it. I have... So I got asked, we had some people over and I was explaining some of my injuries. And they, he said, are you accident prone? I said, I don't think so. I just, anytime I have an accident, it's a big one. Um, we were having a conversation about it and I was explaining uh, the effects of the motorcycle accident I was in and the surgeries that came subsequent to that accident. And then uh, I was in the middle of the description. I kind of went like this and um, their son, their teenage son goes, whoa, what happened to your finger? <laughs> I was like, oh, that was earlier. That wasn't part of the same accident. I lost the end of my finger. I don't know if some of you noticed that before. Uh, I, I don't have the, the end of my pointer finger. It's gone from an a oil field accident at the age of 18. And then that was when the dad looked at me and said, are you accident prone? <laughs> I don't know, but I've had a lot of surgeries. That's what I, that was my answer. I don't, I don't really know. It's weakness. 
And you know what? I, like you and the rest of the world around us, I long for power. I'm tired of weakness. And since we all experience this and we all share this experience with all humans, we're all acquainted with the perishable and the dishonor and the weakness of our bodies. This is where we come to a fork in the road about how we're going to handle that as Christians. How are we going to deal with this? Because everybody longs for the imperishable, the glorious, and the powerful bodies of our dreams. You know who else knows this? The longevity and anti-aging clinics. They want to sell you the fantasy of imperishable through plans and diets and pills. The cosmetic industry promises you glory in place of your dishonor. And when you finally realize there's no such thing as a face cream that will give you flawless skin, they then offer you the more ridiculous promise of glory through cosmetic surgery. Just a little poke, a little injection, a little nip, a little tuck, a little lift, a little trim. Glory can be yours. The health and wellness industry knows this as well. They market toward our weaknesses. And what they promise is power that will make us feel whole. Now, I am for healthy bodies. I am for exercise, caring about what you put in your body. I'm for all those things. At least 80% of the time, I'm for, I'm for those things. We should care for our bodies. We're called to care for our bodies. They are the bodies that God has given us. We should care for them. But I do not want you to think that there is somehow a new 21st century solution for an eternal problem. Like we finally figured it out. I don't want you to think there's some kind of man-made transformation that will offer you what only God can give. Human beings have not figured out how to do this on their own. If there was a way to make perishable lives imperishable, we would have figured it out and then you could purchase it. Because that's how we work. But nevertheless, because I love you, I did some research on this this week just to make sure I was correct. So I read peer-reviewed articles in scientific journals on longevity and anti-aging. These were funded by all kinds of different venture capitalist firms that would like to figure out how to sell you the next thing. And they were also funded by governments who take care of healthcare in their nations. So they have, I guess, some benefit to figuring out how to be healthier. They're funding these studies. Here's what I can tell you was conclusive from looking at all the studies that I looked at. The human mortality rate is still 100%. Human beings will go to great lengths to transform their bodies, but the conclusive evidence is we will all die. I actually did read some studies. I wasn't joking. There was one that, that had a shelf. This, this, this person had a picture of the shelf that they stand in front of every morning where they take uh, over 150 pills a day because it's this anti-aging longevity thing that they're, they're working toward. <laughs> I'm like, I look at that and I'm like, you're going to live like eight minutes longer than me. That's what, and that was my first thought. It was like, <laughs> I don't know. Here's what I also know. Here's what I also know. The Bible tells me that my days have been numbered by God since before the beginning. He says, teach us to count our days aright. So I know my days are perfectly numbered by the sovereign God of the universe. Now, if I live poorly, I, I will experience more suffering and maybe not be able to live as full a life glorifying God as I could have because I've mistreated my body and I've sinned. But now, just, just me. I don't think any of us are lengthening the days of our life. 
And at, at the end of the day, if you, you know, had a timeline of eternity, all of human existence is one little tick on that timeline. And so if you think you're lengthening your life in any kind of meaningful way, I just, I just think we may be revealing our own idolatry. That said, Christianity actually affirms the longing to overcome death and disease and sickness and decay. Christianity affirms that. But this is where the fork in the road shows us some options, right? One pathway is that we'll try and do it on our own strength, and we think that this is all that there is. We better figure this out. We do it on our own strength. Another pathway says, honestly, we just we kind of resign ourselves to defeat, and we just seek to escape this hellish life of flesh. Because those people are out there too, just saying the body is inherently bad. And if you could just escape it, and you could be a pure soul. It's not the Bible either. Or we have the pathway that I would want us to take that comprehends the incomprehensible promise of God that we'll spend eternity with transformed, resurrected bodies. So are you sick? Are you injured? Are you suffering? Here's the promise. In Christ, it won't always be like this. Christianity affirms the longing to overcome death and disease and sickness and decay. But because of Jesus' resurrection, our hope is not that we will leave this body behind, but that this body will be utterly transformed. It's not our hope that we just get out of our body. Our hope is ultimately that our body is transformed in the likeness of Jesus, in the pattern of his resurrection, and that we spend eternity with him. Look at verse 42 again. It says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now look at verse 44 again. This is important for us. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now I want to make sure that we are not misreading this text, which will totally undermine everything I've already done and all the work that I've laid out. We can't misread this. We talked about the embodied reality of our future home. Okay? This is talking about the natural body and the spiritual body. It's talking about the present body and the future body. It says spiritual, but that doesn't mean it isn't a body. And this is what happens is we go spiritual. Ah, yes, like a ghost. No. <laughs> that's, not what it's, that's not what's going on. Not like a spirit. Somehow invisible, floating around in some way we don't understand. It's talking about a body. It's just talking about a spiritual body. Now, if I say I have an electric car, do you think my car is made of electricity? If I say I have a gasoline car, do you think my car is made of gasoline? No, you understand I'm speaking about the car and what it is powered by. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. 
Adam's natural body is powered by the breath of God in the normal sense of our human existence. Our future resurrected body is powered by the Holy Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead. Still a body, powered a little differently. Verse 44 says, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. That part in the quotation marks is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So let's go to Genesis 2, look at verses 5 through 7. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, then, this is talking about the creation of Adam, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So Adam is made from the dust, and God breathes life into him. Now look back at the text, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Okay, stop. That's how he became a living being. Formed of the dust, God breathed into him. Keep reading. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Well, that's different. Verse 46 says, but it is not the spiritual. Now, I've inserted body here because I think that's what it's talking about. In fact, I'm very confident it's what it's talking about. But it is not the spiritual body that is first, but the natural body and then the spiritual body. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, The second man is from heaven. There is a comparison and a contrast between the natural life that we have in Adam and the resurrected life that we have in Christ. There's already been a comparison of Adam and Jesus earlier on in 1 Corinthians 15, back in verse 21. I'm going to take you there. Verse 21, it says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Jesus. Between the first Adam who disobeyed in the garden and brought death, and the second Adam, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed and brought life. The first Adam died and remains dead. The second Adam died and is risen and remains alive. In Adam, our relationship with God was broken. In Christ, our relationship with God is restored. Adam is the head of the old humanity, ruled by sin and death. Jesus is the head of the new humanity, ruled by resurrection and life. Adam is from the earth. Jesus is from heaven. And here's where it connects to us. Because of Adam, we're in a natural body. But because of the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of what is to come, we are promised a spiritual body. A new resurrected body, like Jesus. Our natural body fits this present world, but our spiritual resurrected body will fit our future home, the new heavens and the new earth. Adam's body is linked to earth, the man of dust. Jesus' body is linked to the new earth as the man from heaven. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means that we have a promise of a future home, And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means we have the promise of a new body. And the transformation of our bodies prepares us for an eternity on the new earth. 
And it's only possible because of what we already see in this text. Jesus Christ, the creator God, the imperishable, eternal God of all creation, entered into human history and in his incarnation took on perishability. And then he died. And then he rose in new power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is resurrected. And out of his perishability comes a new imperishability that we also can receive. Christ entered in as the imperishable one, took on a perishable nature and died, and then was raised imperishable, making a way for us to follow. Jesus Christ entered into human history, was dishonored in his life, and particularly in his death. The glorious, infinite God of the universe, Jesus, entered into human history and was dishonored that we might have glory. Jesus Christ, the omnipotent God, all-powerful God, entered into human history, born of a virgin, lived a perfectly sinless life, and died an atoning death in weakness upon the cross. And in his weakness, overthrew all of the powers and the rulers. So what? So that we could have true power one day. The perishable for the imperishable. (laughs) The dishonor for the glory. Weakness for power. And in your perishing body, in your dishonor and your weakness, I just want you to never forget that we have a great God and King who understands exactly how it feels. There is no human emotion that he does not know. And so you sit here today and you go, I'm confused. He says, I understand. You say, I'm in pain. He says, I understand. You say, I am misunderstood by the people around me. He says, I understand. You say, I feel alone. He understands. You say, I'm overwhelmed. He says, I understand. And you know what? He actually understands something that we will never, ever be able to comprehend because he went through an affliction that we will never have to taste. He suffered in a way that we cannot possibly comprehend and he did it for love because you are loved beyond measure and you are being prepared for an eternity with a transformed, imperishable, glorious, powerful, resurrected body. our future home. We have to rightly understand it so that then we can rightly appreciate the beauty of the resurrected body that is promised to us. And then third, our present life. Verse 48 says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Leave the text up there for just a moment. You see where it says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven in the second part of verse 49, where it says, we shall, talking about a future. There's another way to read that, which would be just as faithful, which says, let us bear. Let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. Not only in the future promise of what is already ours in our future home where we will dwell with our future bodies, but if we read it in this way where it says, let us also now presently, we can live this out among our friends and our neighbors. All people understand that our bodies are perishable. They felt the dishonor. They understand the weakness. 
What if we can offer hope that it doesn't have to always be that way? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When he says that we are citizens of heaven, citizens do unique things. We're citizens of heaven, which means we take and embody the values of his kingdom here and now. We have an opportunity to live out of the future promises of God here in the present in our embodied existence. Your literal neighbors matter. Our bodies matter. Our hope that we have in the physical body matters. See, when it says that we are citizens of heaven, he doesn't just mean that we are waiting patiently to be removed from this present world so that we can escape the pain and the suffering of human existence and we can just finally go home. What he means is that we are waiting for Jesus to come and transform the whole thing. We're citizens of heaven. One author says, we are citizens of heaven colonizing earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, yet here we live and spread the good news of his kingdom. Every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the world that we live in. Citizens of heaven colonizing earth. Verse 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. So let us live in the power of the resurrection today and tomorrow and every day, even as we wait for him to come and right all wrongs and make all things new. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and respond with me?